Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Yeah. One of the most beautiful pieces of music, I think, the cello suite number one in G major from Johann Sebastian Bach. Playing that because of our theme today. We'll come back to that shortly. And you're now tuned to Future Sense here on Bay FM. It's 9.07. Thanks to Brett for another bongo gum. He'll be back on Thursday and Mondays, Mondays and Thursdays, 6 to 9 a.m. And uh, now you're with Future Sense, as I said, and myself, Nick Jeans, and my co-host, Steve McDonald. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Mick. Lovely to see you this morning, bright and early. And you, absolutely. (laughs) And we have a special guest today. We do. We've got our special guest, Ivory Root, who's visiting us from Houston, Texas. Welcome, Ivory. Hi, thank you. Nice to to have you here. Beautiful. And first time in Australia, too, I understand. Yeah, it is. Are you enjoying it so far? You, how, how are the accents? Well, you know his accent anyway because you know him from over there when Steve's over in I, I'm the used, US. I'm used to um, rich, distinct accents uh, <laughs> being from Texas, so, but it's beautiful. <laughs> I like that. Very rich, endearing. Rich and distinct. Mm-hmm. So, um, and your history is interesting. We're, we're going to tailor our theme somewhat around uh, your, um, your work today because it's very relevant to what we talk about on this show. We are, yeah. The theme for today is our growing grieving world. Mm. And uh, Ivory is a hospice grief counsellor and death doula. I am. And that's kind of why I'm playing this piece of music here, because I I was listening to it yesterday, knowing that Ivory was coming on and thinking, like, this really, in a sense, has got all the grief and also the hope, in a sense, or the faith inherent in it to me. And the cello being the instrument that actually has the the richest set of overtones of any instrument, as I understand it. So in a way, it it encompasses all of human emotions, from the joys to grief and everything else in between. So that was that piece of music there. It's the heartstrings, doesn't it? It's the heartstrings. I think that's why it's used in film so often. It is used in film so often. And I love J.S. Bach anyway. He's one of my favourites. J.S. actually started the uh, the well-tempered clavier, which completely changed music at the time because he managed to make the notes equal between each note and it gave us the western scale which allowed for um, jazz to emerge to put it really simply bark i think i've heard of him actually (laughs) worse than his bite for sure (laughs) so um yeah just a quick overview of what we're going to talk about today Uh, we're going to look at healing and evolution as we usually do on this show as being on one spectrum of of developmental growth Uh, really both healing and evolution are about making ourselves more whole so uh, that's all connected and here we are on the verge of and really entering into now this global paradigm shift uh, as a human species and we carry with us generational trauma from two world wars and many other smaller wars of course over the last century or two our personal traumas of many kinds which we encounter in our, our personal daily lives global traumas you know events which which really sit apart from from formal war things like 9-11 for example that really did shock the world and even registered on the the global consciousness uh, studies yes instrumentation 
uh, grief associated with the paradigm shift itself, leaving the old world behind and our old way of being and way of living and, and moving on to something new. And I think that's something that is often not uh, acknowledged or even seen is that there is grief associated with going through a transformational change where you, you are leaving, you're really dying to something, something is dying and you're mm. grieving that and moving on to something else. Mm. And, um, and as we transition to this emerging layer of six consciousness, uh, and in that process, expanding our sensory perception and our capacity uh, that's associated with that. We're moving through this phase of grieving for the whole of humanity, and some of us have already been through that and know what that's like. And uh, you know, a large number of people around the world are about to enter into that. So we're going to be facing you know, mass mm. grief. And how do we deal with that? How do we... How do we restructure our society as we're moving from this individual era, uh, you know, a lonely era of scientific industrial living, to back to community? And we're remembering uh, in the process how to live in community by looking back to the past, learning from our elders, mm. you know, in, in tribal civilizations and those sorts of things. And, uh, and we need to not only just remember what we know from the past about rebuilding community and in, in that process also dealing with grief as community, uh, but also adding to it and you know, evolving that process so we're creating something new, something more complex, um, something more, more subtle and more capable mm. in this new community that we're creating globally. Mm. Beautiful. A very rich conversation. Good summary. Well, let's uh, let's start with some, some uh, a piece. In fact, this is uh, I've just really discovered Kate Tempest, but uh, Ivory, you you're familiar with her. I mean, I've I've yeah. come across her before, but I haven't really had to listen. Mm -hmm. And I came across this piece because, in some ways, she articulates in this very strong poem. So this is not I don't think there's any strong language here, but it's a strong poem, really about the state of where we're at. And I think it articulates some of what Steve was just summarising there on that level. So we'll take a listen to this, and we'll be back, and we'll start talking about grief and of course you can always text us in on 043734 straight to our computer screen here if you have any comments or anything you'd like to add to our conversation you're tuned to future sense here on bay fm it's 912 you're tuned to future sense with nick jeans and steve mcdonald engage emerge activate and spiral up yes you are and it's 921 here on Future Sense, and thanks for joining us through to 11 o'clock this morning. And uh, we're talking about, I guess, the grief of the world. We are indeed, and we have our special guest, Ivory, from Houston, Texas, who is a grief counsellor. And uh, Ivory, you and I met, I think it must have been 2015, at the premiere of the movie A New Understanding, which was a wonderful documentary that was produced by a mutual friend of ours, Robert Barnhart. Mm -hmm about the psychedelic research in the US which was uh, giving uh, terminally ill cancer patients a spiritual experience with psilocybin to address their anxiety around death yeah mm -hmm. and so I, I guess that was a that was an interesting in the context of today's discussion that was an interesting uh, connecting point for you and I where that was all around grief and death and, and the and anxiety and, and dealing with exactly <laughs> exactly and uh, and so just for the listeners sake give us uh, a little bit of background how did you get into the this business as a grief counselor um, well I left about 12 years ago a very successful career in advertising um, to go into um, hospice nursing assistant work uh, as I was emerging into medicine an interest in going into medicine working in gerontology to try to f uh, focus on the future of our elders mm. very concerned about medicine around them 
um, and their healing processes and the real goals, the holistic you know, direction I was hoping medicine would go in, and then suffered a very difficult personal trauma um, in the midst of that training um, that um, sort of pulled me right into um, the heart of the deepest grief, I suppose. Uh, my son was about four and a half, and we suddenly uh, lost his father to a mm. heart attack, a very healthy, young 36-year-old man, sort of dropped dead. Um, mm. And um, our whole world's changed very much from that. So I think through that personal grief um, and that connection with death, where I felt death sort of pass through me, and I realized, even though I was talking to it, asking it to not do this, not do this to my son, don't do this to me, don't do this to our family. It was a neutral power. Mm. The it, notion of death passing through you, that's quite a beautiful, can you? Talking to it. Enrich, yeah. You know. Begging it, please, you mm. know, as if it was this um, this angel, you know, something of, mm. as if it was an entity, you know, which is kind of how we, I think, relate to death, you know, the Grim Reaper and all these other different yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, symbolism that we have around it, that it's something we can communicate with. It wasn't listening. It didn't have a voice. It didn't have a mind. It didn't have any malice. It wasn't there to hurt anyone. Mm. So I think that that for me was extremely transformative because I realized that there really is nothing to fear in that moment. To have that visceral experience is quite a gift. So I'm trying um, now. So I became a hospice. I went into social work basically. So I did my undergraduate there. Got licensed there. Went straight into hospice as a social worker and um, found myself uh, leaving in you know, one agency for a bereavement counselor, bereavement coordinator position. And so now I work on the bereavement side and have been a death doula um, for about 10, 12 years in addition to that. So I've helped quite a lot of people cross over and their families hmm. cope. Um, and the specialization in, in grief and uh, particularly around death, I guess, is where is that in terms of uh, an established profession or a career? I mean, is, is there much um, in the way of like a body of knowledge and structure around educating people to do this work or is it still sort of tacked on to the, to the social worker? Um, yeah, I was the only one in my graduating class uh, that was interested in going into hospice, if that tells you anything. Yeah, I mean, everybody okay. else was sort of focused on uh, homeless veterans and, you know, veteran issues or... Yeah. Um, CPS, Child Protective Services, and you know, um, working with immigrant families and that sort of thing. So everybody had their passion. Mm. Uh, it was the only one that was interested in going into death and dying. So right. So it's really it's still an emerging field. In, in, yes. In, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And why do you think that is? Because, um, and I guess in one sense, in the West, it's kind of obvious because we make death. Uh, we we don't make friends with death. We make death a sort of dangerous stranger. It's interesting when you said death doesn't talk, death doesn't have an opinion. However, you said it before is great, mm. and yet we. We have projected a whole set of qualities onto the notion of death, haven't we, mm -hmm. particularly in the West, and avoided it terribly. So we don't talk to our children about it, generally speaking. We don't really talk about it until it comes upon us, and then it's this process which is almost stultified, stuck mm -hmm. somehow, the dark, the black, the depressive, mm -hmm. all these elements, which I guess come particularly from European heritage because it's not a sort of tribal way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So we've had this whole way of doing death in the West, at least for a long time, haven't we? Mm -hmm. And kind of just denied its existence to a degree. Well, we used to be born at home and die at home. Yeah, right. Yeah, and things changed. It, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, medicalized, so medicalized everything. I think that yeah. um, death uh, to the med you know the medical community is a problem. Mm. So we've treated it that way for some time, and there's a lot of honor in that because we are trying to bring a lot of healing to people too. So yes. I have to give credit to those who have you know sort of 
push the research, you know, to go in the places it has, you know, because we, we have extended life in a, in a lot of beautiful ways. Mm, absolutely. Um, but mm. there is a lot, there's great detriment to the fact that we don't um, see death as sort of this faithful companion that's with us from the moment of birth. Um, we need to change and flip the script on, on death um, and see it as a faithful companion mm. um, and not something that uh, is here to destroy us. So faith, faithful companions are... Reminds me of the Carlos Castaneda books. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah his, his teacher telling him that death was always walking behind his shoulder. Yeah, yeah true. Just to be aware mm. of that. Yeah, yeah, I wrote that in a poem, uh, I think, about Daniel, you know, about his passing, about yeah. my late husband's passing, yeah. you know, trying to make peace with it and give a language for my son. Mm. Why faithful, faithful companion? Why faithful? Never How leaves. So? Right, do you get that, folks? Never death, leaves. Death is never... Far what, from what, what's the highest fidelity, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Uh, the other than the fact that life is terminal. <laughs> okay. Oh, <dear. laughs> Death and taxes, folks. You, you turned yeah. to future sense this morning and thought we'd talk about some incredibly positive things towards the future, how technology is saving us, perhaps, and all that. But no, we're talking about death. Yeah. S- stick with it. Stay with it. And grief in particular, because that is the response. Yeah, and death at, at, on all a scales response. here, you know, from, from a very personal experience, as you've just described, Ivory, uh, through to the death of the old paradigm, the death of the scientific industrial way of being, yeah. you know, and moving beyond that and what that means for us. Yeah. Yeah. Intuitively, I think we are pretty freaked out right now. I think a lot of people are, yeah. And it's, you know, I guess as with death at a very personal level, a lot of it just comes down to a fear of the unknown. And crossing over, or, you know, whether there is even a crossing over, or whether it's whether it's the end, and that's it, or, or whether it's a crossing over into something that we just don't really know. And going back to just sort of the micro, if I may, um, you know, giving you an example of of how we've lost the relationship to death and dying, uh, and the fear that we experience around it, being in um, someone's home where a person has, for instance, bed sores or something that are not going to heal. Mm. And so they have um, an odor to them that's unpleasant. And so we have tricks, you know, where you'll put lots of coffee grounds, you know, underneath the bed and that sort of thing. Um, and it really frightens the families quite a bit, you know, to say, well, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you healing it? It's very counterintuitive to them that yeah. people would have sores that aren't healing, but they don't want the decay in the home. And that's essentially what's happening. And it's that's a delicate word to use with someone. Yeah, it's interesting that they don't want the decay in the home. And that's all it mm. is. That's really what it is. Mm. It's, yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's literally death and the decay of the body and the flesh. So that speaks to the decay of all physical things and all living matter in a way. And that how we avoid that, you know, facing yes. decay. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's in, there's an interesting interface between healing and death uh, that I, I I guess I really bumped to when I was working in emergency services, you know, and I was responding to accidents and sure. uh, witnessing sometimes people die in the, in the course of a day's work. And the, the paradox, the, the, the challenge that the medical staff faced, you know, I remember one particular incident where I was, uh, I transferred a patient to a country hospital in central Queensland and uh, as we were arriving there, there was a, an elderly man on a trolley um, in the hallway, actually, who had a cardiac arrest, you know, and there was this a few seconds where the doctor and a couple of nurses all looked at each other and one of the nurses said, should we do something? You know, and it's this this point of, okay, do we just accept that this, this man is dying and that's okay and we, we allow him to die or should we, you know, try and bring him back? I, I have a lot of compassion for people in that role yeah. um, for the ethical dilemma yeah. that they face in that moment. Absolutely. But they are um, they're hired to do a job and that is to preserve life. 
mm. at all costs. Yeah. yeah. And, and in that sense, unfortunately, it's become, of course, an industry where figures and accounting of how many successful operations, how many people are lost or not lost, is, is uh, rather important in, the, in the, I guess, the funding and the maintenance of the structure of, of hospitals and all of these kind of outlets here. The hospice agency I'm currently working with just got a contract with one of our big hospital groups um, in Houston, Texas, you know, sort of um, medical mm. um, mecca of the United States. And um, we're coming in now to do, quote unquote, hospice, end of life care for people who are uh, dying within 12 hours, two hours, 10 hours, 24 hours, because they have come in from some sort of, you know, sudden abrupt change um, in their health. And we're really just there. It's called virtual hospice is what they're calling it. We're really just there, even though it's a quite lucrative contract, um, to reduce the death quota. Uh, really? to re- reduce the wow. death rates for the hospitals. Wow. And I have, you know, some personal, you know, sort of moral injury you know, occasionally with having to do hospice work with people that are not quite really hospice patients. Yeah, I guess the flip side of that is is that we are paying attention and putting energy into um, being with that process and, yes. rather than just leaving it to, to happen, yeah? That's the, that's the upside. Is yeah, that the We up, are still having, we're giving them the comfort, yes. right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM. And we're back with Future Sense. Nick Jeans, me, Steve McDonald, and Ivory Root is visiting from Houston, Texas. Mm. We're talking about our growing grieving world and uh, the role of grief in present and future society and how that's changing with the evolution of humanity. And we're coming to the end now of the scientific industrial era, which has been over 300 years. So that's over over 10 generations mm. of living in a very individually oriented way, uh, in, in a way that has, um, just by, by being itself, it has slowly deconstructed many of our community structures and it's centralized us into cities. So, mm. you know, our, our, our small communities have been degraded. And in the transition back to community, which is, has begun now, it's underway, we need to remember how to be in community and part of that process is naturally thinking back to our tribal origins back to the agricultural era also which was community oriented and try to remember how do we live in community again how did that go uh, what do we do what do we have to do and uh, it's not necessarily about repeating what we did back then although the, the themes spiral up and you know and, and they continue mm. but it's about creating what's next what's new uh, in how do we live in community in, in a, mm. a more evolved and whole way than we ever have before, learning from the past in the process. And I'm, I'm just curious, uh, Ivory, how that might have impacted the work that you're doing and your own learning. Well, I think it starts with my, my very affectionate and loving family. Yeah. Um, I think just having the, the compassion, you know, that was taught to me um, growing up in a very Christian family that, um, where Christ was just love. You know, there was nothing else. I could sit down and talk about my Buddhist fascination with my grandmother, and we just compare Dharma, you know, to the gospel, which was really um, a very unique situation, I think, yeah, for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then later, um, I was very personally inspired by um, a teacher, um, a Guatemalan shaman named Martin Prechtel. Martin Prechtel. And uh, uh, he changed my life with a talk that he gave uh, called Grief as Praise. Mm. And um, I really and truly base my practice now on that. I use those words um, to uh, speak to the bereaved on a daily basis. I genuinely do. I, I tell them um, uh, that we need to flip the script. 
you know, stop beating yourself up, you know, stop isolating yourself and calling this depression or hysteria. Why am I not crying? Um, you know, let's let's focus on the fact that you and I can establish a sense of trust, which mm -hmm. is what Martin talks about. He talks about the fact that we've lost the village. We've we've stopped trusting mm -hmm. one another. And that's why we don't grieve out in the open. Um, and he talks about weepers and how we needed to have weepers, you know, and how in this village they'd have people who actually come down and would loosen the tears of those who could not you know, come into their grief. That's a, a lovely way. expression, loosen the tears. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I like that. And isn't it, it's interesting how we're in the process of sort of looking back and remembering how to be in community. We're learning so much from the communities, you know, in the Americas, uh, and of course, you know, in other places around the, around the world as well, where where those traditions, those tribal traditions, have been continued through history. Well, and, and even it, they had their facilitators, right? He talks yeah. about how they had their weepers. Yeah, you know, so we have to have the facilitators, and we have to go to them. Exactly, we have to trust. And when you were talking there, it also reminded me about the celebration of the Day of the Dead. Oh yeah. yes, which is also kind of flipping the script on the Western way, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which was what All Hallows actually yes. is, in fact, isn't it? Of course, that, that celebration which we now know as, as the pumpkins. What's it called? Uh, Halloween. Yes, that's it. <laughs> no one, yeah. Can never really get it, but of course it goes back into tradition into real stuff, and that is exactly what we're talking about here, the, the, the bereavement of, the acknowledgement of, the passing over of, you know, of all of us eventually. When you're talking to it's really interesting, both of you, because... Of course, when you talk about the the last three hundred years and being in the in the, the paradigm that we've been in in orange in terms of Claire Graves' work, the, the fifth layer, um, that individual individualization that that uh, we've experienced in this era and the extremes we've gone to to become individual, but in doing so we become incredibly lonely, and we've cut ourselves off from these deeper moments of community and these deeper, especially when it comes, I guess, to death and birth, for that matter. Mm -hmm. Both ends of the scale have become, as we said earlier, hospitalized and medicalized and separate from and sort of clean and sterile somehow and, and removed from, you know, all the n nasty stuff that we might actually have to experience. And that rediscovery is really what's going on. And your work clearly is on, on one of those cutting edges of actually re-educating in a sense, or re, you know, reconnecting, as you said. Remembering. Re remembering, mm -hmm. yeah, with people. That's yeah. a huge thing because so many people isolate themselves even further when it comes to grief. With these, when, when death arrives in particular, I think people can tend to isolate themselves more. And yet because we have a tradition where you're supposed to come together for the family if someone dies, there's a kind of, at least there's a, some sort of moment there where actually people do come together, where they may not have for a long time, they may not have for any good deep reason for years perhaps, and yet someone dies in the family and they've kind of forced together, but there's a kind of uncomfortable so nature right. to it, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and I'll talk to a lot of bereaved mm. um, after the sort of the tide has gone out, we say. Oh, you yeah. know, so everyone oh, comes good. in and then the tide goes out and we've got these people who are exhausted yeah. from the funeral. And it's so like, well, hey, give yourself a break. You actually just threw a really sad party. Yeah. <laughs> All these relatives showed up. It is not Thanksgiving. <laughs> Uh, Christmas time, uh, of course you're exhausted. You had to put your mask on, you know, you had to mind your manners and not cry and mm. not grieve openly. You know, there were no weepers there because if you have that, um, well, then everybody's quite worried about you. So, so uh, we have someone who's written in about Martin Prechtel, as you know, because in, in between, you were going to yeah. talk about Martin anyway. You were going to talk Very exactly young. about this. <laughs> and of course, as it happens, synchronicity occurs on this program all the time. Someone wrote in and uh, wrote about this. And the best description he says or she says of grief and praise Look up Martin Prechtel, da, 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 and that's P-R-E-C-H-T-E-L, Prechtel. He's also one of the great writers of our day, as well as uh, a fully initiated culindero. 
we'll say, if you don't know what that is, we'll come back to that. Freely adapting from him, him, he says, the essence of grief's purpose is to feed the departed before they turn without being able to look back. The food nourishes our conviction just enough to empower us to cross the vastness to the beach of stars where the ancestors await with open arms. Quite beautiful. Wow. Mm. Thank you <laughs> for writing that in. It's really nice. And that yeah. idea, idea of feeding the departed, like if you think in a, in a holistic way that mm. everything's connected, everything really is a part of, of us and vice versa, mm. uh, in the process of losing the physical, uh, you know, there's a, there's a hole created there. And so we're feeding that through this process of feeding the, the bereaved. And words are so important, obviously. Yeah. So there's a lot of power in the word praise where I am practicing. It's a largely, you know, Christian um, faith base. Yeah, I mean, right. almost exclusively. Yeah. So the word praise doesn't make them uncomfortable at all. Yes. It's actually so soothing to them. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell them that I got it from a Guatemalan shaman, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which is which is what a culandero is. Yes. Come back to we're going to come back to that just to explain. Yeah. 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 But um, so that's a word that's very soothing mm. yeah. um, for a person of any age. You yeah, know. and it also speaks very much to the importance of, of customizing language and processes to the culture that you're working in. Right? Yes. Yeah. Very important. Um, and obviously that works very well there. might not work so, so well in a, in a place that wasn't, didn't have a Christian foundation, perhaps. And a lot of your focus is on a universal language, right? Yes, yeah. But we've got a lot of work to do um, in communities, you know, um, and families, you know, in terms of reaching them on a micro level to find words to connect us that are specific to the region mm. before we can, you know, really get into that universal language. So there's a barrier there mm. that we'll work through absolutely yeah yeah and it's it's about i think it's about learning to pay attention to these differences you know like cultural differences and those sorts of things and and uh having the the capacity the skills the resources to be able to adapt when we need to you know to to meet people where they're at and that's very much a, a key part of Clay Graves' work is mm. understanding that people aren't all at the, at the same place you know people who are essentially operating on different frequencies and, and the best we can do is to meet them where they're at and, and give them what they need in their own language and their mm -hmm. own style yep. yeah um, another text has come in which is kind of relevant just to what you were saying there personal experience here my stepfather passed over three years ago my dad passed over a couple of years ago and have many many friends passed over the past decade these multiple numbers of deaths have smashed my sometimes illogical mind I feel pain when I see people hurting from their loved ones passing over. My losses to me are huge to me and I talk to them wherever my past loved ones are and feel them sometimes communicating back to me. I find this communication healing for me. This subject is so wide and varied, having many avenues of understanding or attempting to understand why, why, why has no reason why. You can really feel the pain and, and, and the honesty and, and uh, depth of experience there from this person. Thank you, whoever you are, male or female, because, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminds me of the nested nature of our own development and, and of human development generally, where we, we start, you know, we're born into essentially a pre-rational reality where we're operating from our urges and instincts and our basic needs. Mm -hmm. Everything's very much in the moment and we seek to, you know, resolve solve feed whatever it is that's mm. arising right now and then from there we transition into uh, the dominance of the rational mind where everything becomes very rational and we've just kind of reached a peak of that in the scientific industrial era and it, it, within the first tier of uh, the layers of consciousness we tend to 
uh, we're, we're essentially flipping backwards and forwards from left and right brain dominance as we go through there. So every time we've transitioned to a new layer, we're kind of kicking out what you know the baby with the bathwater <laughs> and, and flipping back to communal or individual, whatever it might be. And so I think part of the difficulty that we, we have generally around grief in society at the end of this scientific industrial era is the rational mind has been in charge and we've tried to like just handle it all with the rational mind when it needs to be a whole body, whole system experience, right? Grief, mm-hmm. and it needs to speak to and, and through our pre-rational selves mm-hmm. and, and our trans-rational selves if we, if we have access to that also. Yeah, and of course, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm also thinking, of course, of, of the, the macro and the fact that the, the new grief that is arising, the grief about the planet, for example, the global grief that now we can experience because we have that overview of all of us being on this one being, this planet, this Gaia, if you will. And we also have, I think, a lot of grief about um, anything passing away. We've built such huge institutions which have governed us somewhat well for a long time. It's created a lot of advancements. We've solved a lot of the Earth's problems in the last couple of hundred years and certainly in the last hundred with our technology, with our advancements, a lot of people out of poverty and so forth. And yet now those institutions are clearly past their past their use-by date. Yep. And we, but we're grieving. We, we, we still don't want to let those go. And mm-hmm. there's an interesting piece in The, in the Guardian uh, yesterday, Australia, Guardian Australia, from Clive Hamilton, well-known Australian uh, writer talking and i've got it over there but very loosely about the loss of culture that uh, the, the the people are now voting not about policies this is also true in america he uh, hypothesized about trump's win and also in brexit it's not about politics or even economics it's about culture it's about i don't want to lose my culture my way of seeing things my approach to stuff so i'll vote there even if i'm it's not going to be beneficial for me economically it's easy for me to stay in in the known yeah, yeah. But and that goes back to um, you know our relationship to our ancestors. Mm. So if we're trying to honor uh, the fact that our grandparents or our parents um, were Republican in yeah. America, yes. Okay, so that's what we grew up with. That's our culture. Yeah. And so why would we change our vote? We can't change our party. We're betraying yeah. you know our own personal culture, even if it goes against everything you know, that we see is right for the future, we cannot go into that booth and betray our ancestors. Yes. So that's really tricky in America, I think. Um, there's a lot of resentment, you know, um, amongst, you know, even within families, you know, like how could you continue to vote this way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it also speaks to the fact that as we're in this transition phase, the natural tendency is to regress back to old values because we, we've come to the, use, the end of the use-by date, as you said, Nick, of, of the scientific industrial values. They clearly don't work anymore, mm-hmm. and we can't see into the future. So the, the human instinct is to look back, and we'll go, okay, how were things back then? You know, Maybe we should go back to that. And this is also part of remembering from our past experiences as, as we move into new community. Mm. Uh, so it, it's quite natural that people, you know, they're, they're thinking more traditionally and going back, or, you know, what did my grandparents do? Maybe, maybe everything was okay back then. Maybe I should just, you know, go back to living like they did and those sorts of well, things. Well, we also have been dumbed down and we don't really know our history. <laughs> that's true. That's that's very, very true. Yeah. We're not being taught proper that's history. Yeah, and the whole, so. you know, the values regression itself is a dumbing down. And it's, it, but it's a very natural process of, of the death of, a, you know, of our old culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what it does is it builds the evolutionary tension by going back to simpler values. They, they're even less appropriate than, yeah. than the ones that we're just leaving behind, you know. And so it's like pulling back that elastic band on the slingshot and creating the, the potential energy for the big shift that's coming. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose in that way, all the destructive <laughs> uh, fallout that comes from these sorts of political, this 
political climate, maybe that is. Um, a- absolutely, way. yeah. You know, it's all. I, I, I sort of come from the angle that everything's perfect, everything's part of a natural process. And often we can't see that, we don't understand it, so we say, oh, it's wrong or it's bad. But actually, if, if you look deeply enough, it's, it's all natural. And even, you know, like the, the, the death of the US empire, which seems to be underway at the moment, and Trump's role in dismembering this, you know, I almost said beast then, but uh, um, it's, it's all part of a natural process and it's essential for change to happen. You, and uh, using the analogy of like a kid's, um, say, a, you know, a kid builds a ship out of Lego blocks, you know, you put all the blocks together, you have the ship. If you want to change it into an airplane, you can't just snap your fingers and do that. You've got to pull it apart, you know. Mm-hmm. The system of blocks has got to come apart. So and it the can kid be... goes, no! Exactly, exactly. And you go, hang on a minute. This is, it's <laughs> okay. Faith. Just just, just hold faith. it. We'll, we'll, you know, I'm going to make an airplane. It's all right. Yeah. Um, and God, you know, that's an analogy for the whole global shift at the moment is things are coming apart. Everybody's looking at it going, oh, my God, no, we're losing everything. You know, it's just going to be a pile of blocks. And, we'll... mm-hmm. and it's interesting with the article that I mentioned by Clive Hamilton referring to this and it's slightly tangential but not really because he says um, uh, the argument that money doesn't buy happiness is typically attributed to the comfortable middle classes but it can apply at the other end too at the lower end those who vote against their economic interests might be worse off under a conservative government but they will feel better but they will feel better because of the psychic wages they receive from knowing their anxieties are being recognized and addressed <laughs> These psychic wages compensate for any decline in material living standards. Mm. Isn't that the case in, in mm-hmm. our countries now? You know that mm-hmm. so many people will just vote down that line just to keep their psychic space intact back in the past, yeah, where yeah. they were comfortable, yeah. and projecting this is the way it should be in the future. Otherwise, I can't survive, and yet everything's collapsing as it's we speak. Yeah, yeah, maddening in America. Yeah. Yeah, well, really. it's not. We're not far behind here. Yeah. Really. <laughs> so, so the psychic wages is actually political spin. Is that right? Is that what it is? <laughs> Fake news. Well, yeah, <laughs> make us feel good. Uh, yeah, I think because I, I think exactly that. I think yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a marketing ploy in a sense. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, you know, as we know, the Americans have invented marketing. Basically, did a great job of it. It's done a really good job of selling yeah. the world on all sorts of hey, things. Hey, I left the industry. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I learned from it, I'm I, sure. I forgot you were in advertising. <laughs> You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.